Welcome to Polycast, a civilization podcast focused on game strategy. Canis Albinas. Makalua. The Man Team. Mega Bears Fan. And that's me, isn't it? Hello, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to Polycast episode 392. I'm your host, Canis Albinus, and we have the full roster today. We have Makalua. Hello. The Mian team. Always behind, even when you turn around. And Mega Bears fan. Who is now a proud dad of a three and a half week old uh, newborn who is currently sleeping on my shoulder. Aww. Does that mean we should be extra quiet and not so loud? No, he actually sleeps very well. Uh, I bet we could probably play a rock band and have him in the same room and he would not be bothered by it. (laughs) He has his mom's super sleepy time powers. It's a nice power to have in the modern world. Oh yeah, tell me about it. (laughs) I do not possess it. My uh, ability to sleep is limited by my machine. I can't sleep without my machine. See, Canis is gradually getting on board with the conversion of people into cyborgs. Well, I'm actually going the opposite direction. No, you don't understand. I'm losing mechanical parts every day. Once you understand, you will see the light. The Borg ain't all it's worth. It's a work in progress. I don't want to be part of that work. But anyway. (laughs) Don't worry, we'll make it so you want that. <clears throat> do, 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 do news things? Sorry we don't have audio cues if anybody's listening because, uh, well, yeah, thanks. But uh, <clears throat> I think we mentioned in passing before about Civ turning 30, but now it's official because it's been recognized by Firaxis <clears throat> on the Civilization.com website. There's a trailer there about you the Great and a very nice little letter from Sid Meier talking about uh, <laughs> things like we've all learned the one more turn to look up at your clock to discover, oh, God, it's 2 a.m. Which is that seems like amateur hours if we're only to only two AM? You mean you didn't you didn't stop your game of Civ because daylight was coming through the window and you went, wait what? Yeah. It's I've only need one more turn. Why is it getting light out? <laughs> Who turned on okay. the lights? If you play long enough it'll get dark again. Yeah, but I'd like to remain employed. <laughs> <laughs> uh but this video made me feel very happy because they do care as much as a corporation can care. No, there's still there's still plenty of people there that still uh, you know that enjoy working on it and are, are are passionate about it. It's just it's very different from what was the original company and everything because it's been 30 years and things in gaming have changed and there's very few companies that survive without being bought out or reformed or something or the other like that and not had major upheavals of their upper people and the everyday programmers and coders and such. So. Well, as we'll find out, there have been some pretty major upheavals over the years. That's a different topic. Yeah, it's actually the next topic. The New Yorker decided that they were going to acknowledge the presence of Sid Meier's memoir. And uh, it was a very nice write-up about how video game industry has changed over the years and how, you know... When Sid Meier started, it was a very singular thing where it was him and one other guy and 
he did most of the work, and then over time, people, other people started taking over smaller jobs, and eventually you end up with a giant studio doing the whole thing for years on end, working in the trenches. And, it's interesting uh, the cycles, though, because like now we see a lot of indie developers making great games with a similar initial model. Yeah. That isn't really covered in the article so much, but it is true. Now that yeah. we we have more sophisticated programming systems and um, tools for the creation of games rather than just going by assembly code like they used to back in the old days. Yeah, like Unity and Unreal and stuff like that are making it so that even teams of just one, two, or three people can like make stuff that looks, you know, and, and plays almost as well as uh, a larger development studio. And that's just uh, going to get better and better as time goes on. Like, the games are usually shorter. You know, I don't expect a team of, of one, two, or three people to make a 90-hour epic, you know, along the lines of, like, The Witcher 3 or Red Dead Redemption 2. But, you know, they could make a very high production value, like, six-hour game. Or you get something like Stardew Valley, which has just about infinite replay value. I'm just interested that the initial model that was followed in the past is proven to outcompete in some cases, uh, at least in terms of the quality of the games produced, uh, the huge business models. Well, part of it is you have a smaller... You're, you're putting out a smaller amount of money to develop the game when you have a smaller team, and it's easier to keep a smaller team passionate about the whole project and keep the quality up. And it's also easier to keep the cost down. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, when you, so then when you do go to market it, they can, in comparatively to what you, it cycled around from like where it was in the early eighties where people were one or two people in their garage or in an off, you know, an off room in their house, developing a game and marketing it. They didn't have all the things we do now with steam and other platforms to push the game across to a bunch of people. They had to get it into a story, maybe get picked up by a publisher if they were lucky. But also like, because you have so many more resources in a big organization and in other, in other businesses, that's a, a, a crushing advantage, but it seems like the coordination costs in games is so great that like modularly building stuff doesn't consistently work out. It's not just the game industry; it's the entire software development apparatus. They taught yeah. us a lot. They taught us a lot. I, I went to school for software engineering, and one of the things they taught us a lot was that the methods by which we do software engineering very old and antiquated uh, when you're working with something called the waterfall model, which is basically just the way that software is usually developed by big companies. And it gets much, much more expensive to do, and it's much more lacking in proper use cases. It becomes very difficult to handle such a big system like that. Whereas a lot of the smaller, newer companies are doing things like agile modeling and other types of programming that don't follow the same paradigm. There's that when, word Dan hates. <laughs> I thought Dan hated the word synergy. He hates, oh, he hates, that, he one hates that one too. Corporate speak in general. <laughs> but when games started to get really big and started to make more money, and as they started bringing corporate people in, is what you saw later in the 90s, is that started to... They wanted. They didn't understand necessarily people coming in. They knew corporate stuff, but they didn't know software stuff, and they wanted to make it work in some sort of model or hierarchy. And you got to this point where you couldn't make major changes in a game without having to go through a couple of managers. And 
and then especially later when you got into online things, they need to make changes like yesterday. They need to get this patch out, but they had to clear it with multiple people before they could put a patch out. So they, And they, publishers and all that. Yeah, so the corporate world coming into the gaming world is kind of, I don't know, messed up its rhythm for a long time, and it's sort of gotten it back through smaller independent publishers and using different uh, organizational structures. Well, and more than just managers and stuff like that, like nowadays, a lot of content has to go through lawyers and PR people, yeah. too, to make sure that they're not, you know, infringing on some kind of copyright or, you know, doing something that's uh, not going to be positively received by uh, the social media landscape. Well, the PR was always a thing, though, because even in the, like, the 90s, stuff was getting chopped uh, by censors. You hear stories about that? Oh, yeah, there were some games out there it- even back in the days, like, why would you put this out? But they put it out because they could put it out there and get a quick profit off of it. And like fly-by-night companies, they were here. They were here one year and gone the next. It was still going to be different like, than PR, but yeah. In the early '90s, like religious references, especially like negative ones, were they, that was kind of touchy at the, that time. <laughs> it's a different era, so like stuff that would be acceptable today was certainly not uh, then, and in some cases, vice versa. <laughs> yeah, there, there, there's some, I want to say, sexual theming to a few text-type games and stuff that were late 80s, early 90s that would not fly at all today. It's like, no, 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 especially ones that got uh, particularly misogynistic, you know? It's like, nope, 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 nope. Because now they realize, oh, yeah, women play games too. Oops. Yeah, plus some of the the worst aspects of human history have seen peaks and valleys in terms of whether it's acceptable to model them in games and to what extent. Yeah, we're not seeing too many Custer's Revenges or uh, Leisure Suit Larry's anymore. Although Leisure Suit Larry is still a franchise that's going on. I see a game pop up on Steam every now and then. Yeah, I, I barely played those, the 90- it was always an amusing concept. <laughs> I, I actually have played a couple of those from back in the 90s, and it's like, comparatively to the bits I've seen out of the newer ones, they're kind of toothless in comparison. And the other ones really got into that, and it's like, what? Yeah. I mean, if you're going to do that at all, you might as well go all out with it. Yeah. Back in the days when morals were different, but they did still exist. You're all going to turn violent because you went and shot demons on Mars. Oh, no. Yeah. (laughs) I remember those days, yes. (laughs) So anything else we want to say about the article? I think that's about enough. Okay then, well, we will keep giving opinions then as our next topic covers those, and they may or may not be popular. A lot of times when you get these uh, unpopular opinions threads, which is the topic here, uh, a lot of people wind up just saying things that people like and wind up being popular. I mean, I've seen one of these crop up on the Paradox uh, forum recently too, and it's kind of funny how many posts make it into that thread that just get like 20 likes and one dislike or something. So it may, it's a may or may not be unpopular opinions. Thread. Yeah. Uh, so a couple for me that I think will be reasonably unpopular. Uh, I don't think a variety of diff- uh, victory conditions is too meaningful in practice. So I don't know that uh, Civ games need to keep them, but that's something like, like even Sid Meier would probably disagree with uh, based on what I've heard. So uh, that's one for me. 
Um, geez, I don't know. Other than I would, I weight the UI much more strongly than almost everyone. So I guess that's to a degree that it's unpopular. My unpopular opinion about Civ is that I don't like Civ Two, but that's also kind of a joke reference. So, <laughs> but no, my unpopular opinions about Civ Six. I like one unit per tile. I don't like the way that some of the game modes screw things up. Maybe that's more popular than I think. It. Also, I like some of the game modes, and I approve of New Frontier Pass over another expansion. Also, trade companies are not overpowered. Unpopular. Hmm. I kind I of hate. I kind of hate mountain maps because with one unit per tile, that means you're going through these tiny passes. Even just to get places, and then you and the AI are blocking each other off. Like, no you, no you, no you. And then you're stuck in the same spot for 10 turns. Is that really unpopular, though? I feel like a lot of people... I don't are know. It was unpopular that I hate the mountains, maybe. But... Oh. <clears throat> yeah, bad terrain's frustrating. There definitely needs to be, like, maybe a passable version of mountains and an unpassable, like, version of mountains. Like, just a regular mountain that's passable, then maybe a peak tile or a summit tile, which is impassable, but maybe like ending your turn or moving through the mountains damages your unit or something like that. Similar to, uh, I think Carthage had that as a unique ability in Civ five where they could cross mountains, but it would damage the unit. Yeah. Cause it acts like right now that every tile is Mount Everest and there's no way you could cross it. And there's plenty of mountains that are crossable. Right. Yeah, exactly. And you have that historic precedent of, again, you know, Hannibal mm-hmm. of, of Carthage specifically doing that, as a military tactic against Rome because he thought the Romans wouldn't expect it. So, you know, you have historical precedents for it as well. Uh, speaking of historical precedents, I think my most unpopular opinion would probably be that uh, I kind of wish Firaxis would not shy away from some of the, you know, more sensitive uh, historical issues. Like, I kind of do feel like there's a way to model things like slavery and and colonialism and imperialism in these games and make it so that, like, the mechanics perhaps actually teach the player, like, how the economic and social pressures and stuff like that led to those sorts of uh, systems emerging and, you know, potentially also ways to recognize those things happening in today's world and hopefully allow us to then prevent them. I can and, see slavery, but how would you do colonialism with how the maps are generated? Well, and yeah, I mean, everyone starts at an equal position. That's that's tough to reconcile. I think. Yeah, that's definitely a harder thing to implement in in the game. But you know, I, I definitely feel like because of their interactive nature, like these games uh, have the potential to be very potent teaching tools because you're actually asking the player to engage with these systems and potentially also you know, fall into the traps of implementing your, your instituting like slavery and, you know, other sorts of uh, things. And then perhaps being like, oh, well, I, I guess that is how it happened in history. And oh my gosh, I've got to watch out because I can fall into those traps too. Yeah, although the game reward model is a little different from real life reward model. So in practice, it just tends to be that like slavery is the optimal game choice. <sighs> Yeah, and, and that's kind of what I mean by there are ways to, to you know, there might be ways to do it. Like, I, I'm not sure if I, I think that the ways that it's been implemented in the past are ideal. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I would wish that, you know, they wouldn't just say, oh, no, that's off the table, you know? Yeah, I agree like, with that. I just, I wonder if we could get the economic models that make the trade-offs more genuine 
to history to really give the, the proper nod or not. But uh, yeah, depending on your level of abstract- abstraction, that's certainly possible. I don't know if you could do it within the context of like a 4000 BC to 2000 AD Civ game, though. Yeah, and that's, again, implementation is the sticking point. Uh, but like I said, I, I get the feeling that it's it's like something that either 2K or Firaxis is just saying, no, we're not going to touch that with a 20-foot pole at all. And, you know, I, I think that is unfortunate because, like I said, I think there's potential for it to be a potent learning tool if a system is implemented well. Now, of course, the risk is you implement it poorly and, uh, you know, everybody hates the game and uh you know it's offensive and uh doesn't perform well and you know hopefully you don't end up with situations like the studio being shut down and everyone getting laid off and that's the risk and i definitely understand why you would not want to take a risk like that um but at the same time like you know this is a game that allows genocide right and in fact committing genocide is one of the victory conditions of the game so broadly optimal yeah, and many would argue that that is the way to play the game. So, like, okay, you're you're okay with that, but you're not okay with you know some kind of inst- abstracted institutionalized slavery. Like, eh. What I would like to see, and this might actually be unpopular, is a much more rigorous economic modeling, uh, such that your success depends on it. Now, how that would look like in the context of a Civ game, I don't know, uh, but. Like a lot of historical decisions were driven by those incentives, which the games just generally gloss over almost entirely. Like you have a trade screen that you can do a little bit with, and you have some trade routes that you can do a little bit with. But for the most part, like that dependency isn't there, and the incentives to conquer for financial reasons, in some cases, isn't there. Well, that goes back to what you said earlier about how the game structure not really being conducive to like colonialism or imperialism, because the game doesn't put a whole lot of pressure on the civilizations or the players to continually expand and grow and acquire more resources. And one of the big reasons for that is because resources are never exhausted. And that's one of the big reasons why a nation would have to, you know, potentially declare war or, you know, settle new lands or conquer new lands because they are running out of resources at home or they need more resources for their growing population. And that's always been something in civilization where it's it's just not that difficult to manage in most cases. Or, you know, if you need some new luxuries, you just trade for them. And there's not any real extra incentive to conquer that civilization that has those resources. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know what you do with the strategics either. Because, like... Y- you can create a demand for something that didn't exist previously through technology. And the game models that a little bit, right? Like, if you don't have oil and somebody else does, or you want more oil, then you might actually do something aggressive to get oil in Civ Six. But it just doesn't have the the sheer weight of what it would in, like, our history, especially for wartime choices. One of the things that I, I did like in the New Frontiers path uh, DLC is the um, monopolies and corporations mechanic where there actually was a pretty substantial reward for monopolizing a resource which actually did provide a civilization with an incentive to go out and acquire as much of it if not all of it uh, if possible which would potentially include conquering other civs because you don't get those monopoly benefits if you're trading for the resource, you have to control it and produce it domestically. So I think maybe further expansion of those ideas could, you know, potentially work. And yeah, uh, human- I don't know if conquest should always be the right answer, though. 
in terms of like arrangements. Like there should be some kind of trade off there. In in a lot of cases, it just doesn't make financial sense to bother. And it's tough to get that right. I don't know that you can do it again on scale because like the economics of that are going to be different in the BCs versus post industrialization by a lot and quite a bit in between those two as well. One of the interesting things that humankind is is doing is uh, that you don't have to actually negotiate to trade specific luxury resources. You basically just do a treaty with the other civilization that says, hey, we're allowed to buy your goods. And then once you have that treaty going, you just unilaterally buy whatever you want. You just have to pay the gold cost for it. And then you also get the the benefits. Uh, you, you get scaling benefits from having more of a, a, of a luxury. So it's not just, oh, acquire one source of this luxury and now I'm good. It's no, I, as my population grows, I actually need more of it. I'm trying to look through the thread for some other actually unpopular. Beyond <laughs> Earth was a good game. Or at least, like, well, it's not a <laughs> unpopular opinion, but yeah. Because, <laughs> like, you shouldn't build wonders on high difficulties. Like, is that really unpopular? I don't think so. No, that's usually, like, a, a advice to give when you, you move up a level. Forget about wonders, just go for armies at first until you get a handle on the level. Plus, it's just a matter of practicality in a lot of cases. Like, some wonders are just not viable to pursue because you can't consistently get them against yeah. the AI bonuses. Stonehenge, so, like, Hanging Gardens, those sorts of things. That's just like, unpopular at all. And Phil has long preached the virtue of, like, the six-axe or six-whatever-early-unit wonder. Oh, yeah, dating back to our Civ War days with that. Yeah, and I've long been on the the soapbox of of very much disliking how front loaded the increased difficulty of the civilization games has been, and how I, I feel like you know Fraxis really needs to come up with some way to stretch that difficulty out over the course of the game, or maybe actually scale up the difficulty as the game progresses, so that you know maybe everyone starts off on an equal footing, and then all of those production and science and population uh, handicaps for the AI come into effect later as a counterbalance for potential human player snowballing. It'd be hard to do, though, because those early advantages are more impactful. True, but they are also the reason that, you know, the the problems that we were just mentioning exist. Like, you, you can't get those early wonders because you're not starting with three free cities and each with three free population and increased population growth and production where you can afford to just dedicate a city to building something like Stonehenge. Yeah, but if you can get those, then now you need the AI to like scale up even harder than it does to make up for the change in difficulty being easier in effect for the player. Yeah, and there might be it's not an easy problem to solve. I mean, you could just make the AI play better. Like, yeah, that's, an, that's easier to say, but <laughs> it's well, not necessarily easy to implement. Here's there an might also be a happy opinion. middle ground where you do a little bit of both. Here's an unpopular just, opinion: the AI is good in that it's historically accurate. The AI's <laughs> civilizations often got diplomacy wrong, they got unit wrong, they screwed up everything, and yet sometimes they didn't. This comes from Earl of Pembroke. And a lot of times, civilization succeeding was just down to random luck. You know, hey, we had access to this particular resource at a time where it was particularly useful. So we had a thriving civilization for you know a few hundred or a thousand years. That's what happens to you in game two. If you if you have a good start and you've got some early uh, strategic resources like horse or iron, you can go on a rampage. But in a different game, if you had the exact same terrain around you, but your resources were different, you wouldn't be have as good a game. Ooh, Luke Karam suggesting you get rid of builders. 
<laughs> well, again, that's something that humankind did. You just build everything from yeah. the cities. Yeah, and yeah. that has merit for sure, but I think that would be so at least somewhat unpopular for some of the Civ fans. It would at yeah, least be controversial. But yeah, I wouldn't miss them the way they are now. I think even the transition from workers to builders in Civ Six was controversial when the game came out, but I, I've come to actually like it a lot, because I like that you have to keep continually reinvest in your workforce, as opposed to just building a bunch of workers at the beginning of the game, and then you know, it basically being kind of trivial to build new improvements as they get unlocked because you already just have the workers to do that. Well, you're probably either over or under building workers and so far. It is extremely difficult unless you're like one of the handful of best of the vast to build exactly the right amount of workers to get the things done that you need. But the point is that that investment is very front-loaded and you're not, you're not investing in that over the course of the game other than just the time to build the stuff. If you over-invest in a front-loaded investment, you will absolutely kill your technological and expansion progress. And I don't mean, like, a little bit. I mean, like, the good players are getting liberalism before 500 AD, like, it's nothing. And most players I see struggle to get it by a thousand kind of differences. Like, huge, huge differences. <laughs> and that doesn't all come down to worker investment, but, like, those kinds of choices snowball hard and in ways that you don't really see. So I'm not I, saying I it doesn't. I'm, I'm just saying it's a front-loaded investment. Yeah. And, and you can have 400 impactful choices without having the workers themselves. Yeah, and in a game that's, you know, 400-something turns long and takes days or weeks or months to play, like, you know, that sort of stuff should be spread out across the entire game, and I like that Civ Six does that. Ooh, ooh, they should bring back vassal states, but not peace vassals. <laughs> mm. Now, if I said they should bring back peace vassals, that would be legit unpopular, I think. But vassal states alone might not be. Yeah, but yeah I mean, bringing back peace vassals would probably upset a lot of people, including myself. <laughs> again, I think that would depend a lot on the implementation, right? If you make it, if you make uh, develop it in a way that it's not like completely broken, then you know maybe it works. I, yeah, maybe the problem is in Civ Four, at least you could get pulled into wars that would otherwise not happen due to peace vassaling. And I don't know how you would avoid that. Well, you could argue that that's just the the risk you take when you basilize another sieve. Like you're just you're taking on that burden. No, I mean uh, as the attacker, you're you have otherwise great relations with somebody. You're attacking a third party, and your really good relation uh, ally, like or borderline ally, attacks you because they accepted a vassal. Oh, okay, I get what you're saying now. Yeah, that is annoying. I think we're all in favor, though, of, of more robust uh, diplomatic uh, mechanics yeah. in, in the Civ games, and that, that's something that could potentially fix that problem as well. That's true. And, uh, yeah. you know, you know, just a simple thing in, in I think, Total War, uh, if, you're, if you have a defensive pact or alliance with a, another nation and they're declared on, you are given the option to honor your defensive pact or not at the cost of some kind of, like, you know, reputation or honor you know, mechanic, where if, if you keep breaking those treaties, nobody trusts you and you're not going to be able to sign them again in the future when you need them. Yeah, more robust diplomacy is no place in this thread. <laughs> That's not going to be a thing, I don't think. I think pretty much everyone wouldn't mind that. Or close enough. I believe the diplomacy in Civ Six is brilliant and should not be changed. Not. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that would be relatively unpopular. Movement rules in Civ 6 are the best of the series. Ew. Okay. Yeah, I, I don't like that one. Bring back Civ 5. Uh, 
I have kind of mixed feeling on that too. I mean, it's def the terrain is definitely more impactful, and I think that's good. I think the problem is, is that the game, just the maps still are too claustrophobic, and there's not enough open space where moving large numbers of units is not a pain in the butt. And yeah. like as I was talking about earlier with mountains. Yeah, and and like the the fact that you're not in control of where your roads go because they're built primarily by traders and stuff like that means there's not really a lot of ways for the player uh, or the civilization to uh, like address that issue, especially since like roads don't even confer all that much of a benefit early in the game at all. Like I think all they do is they reduce movement penalty from entering rough terrain. They don't even speed up movement. Yeah, I guess this might be more a factor of how movement in general in Civ 6 feels rather than the rules themselves. Because if the surrounding stuff was less inconvenient to work with, then maybe it wouldn't be too bad. Yeah, I'm perfectly but, yeah, fine with colors. With, it. <laughs> yeah, I'm perfectly fine with the terrain being with rough terrain being very disruptive to unit and army movement. You just need for there to be patches of land that are not rough terrain where your army can move, or you know, investment on roads or whatever. Uh, and yeah, again, it's also a prob- problematic that, you know, because there's no stacking at all in Civ Six, even if you have a road, you can't move your entire army on that road unless you just have them moving in a single file line and good luck keeping that going for any duration of period of time without the units running into each other and, and getting stuck. So again, that's something that humankind recently has tried to address by letting you stack units into armies and then having them basically explode out onto the map to actually fight battles. So they can you can move entire armies along a road or a railroad all at once. Total war civilization. I see. Uh, and speaking of humankind, I see, uh, I think, post number 29 from Coupe Navigator says, uh, really unpopular one. I think Civ Six is a better historical game than humankind because I don't like culture change. I don't like the way that the humankind does culture change. I don't know how humankind does culture change. You basically every era you you get to pick a whole new culture. Oh, if that you, kind of change. Okay, I thought they were talking about like something like culture pressuring mechanics. I know. I'm no, assuming. Like, yeah, he's talking about the era. Okay. Yeah, where you could start as the basically China and then like in an early area and era, excuse me, and then like move to the Romans and then move back to somebody else and then like the Khmer and then you move into being like the British and it's weird. I mean, it's cool but weird simultaneously. Oh, so they don't gate you. Like, if you start with a Central Asian, you're not, like, limited to, be, to like, progressing either West nope. or East or keeping, like... <laughs> I would not be surprised, though, if that's something that uh, is added to the game eventually through, like, expansions or patches or whatever. Because I think the big hang-up right now is there just aren't enough cultures in the game for that to be viable. Because there are, there are yeah. eras where there's just not a culture available that might match that particular criteria. It's like cultures are pretty different from each other, but if they're at least like geographically close physically, you you could take it as like one culture overcoming the other in war or something, or just for whatever reason. Yeah, you, like, you can, was like, overthrown. In that. Whereas like Rome suddenly becoming Japanese is a little more <laughs> jarring. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. It's, it's, yeah. it's, there's some there's some that it's a kind of a flow. Like you start. Maybe what would have been the Fertile Crescent, you sort of progress across Europe, it doesn't feel so strange. But if you start, yeah, if you start <laughs> Japan, and then suddenly you're Rome, now suddenly you're the Khmer, now suddenly you're Britain. What? <laughs> yeah, and that is exactly how it works in practice. Although, from what I've played so far, it does seem like, uh, I, I have had games where um, 
picking a a closely related civilization in the new era was actually like the best option for me because it had you know unique uh, infrastructure and stuff like that that complemented what I was already doing. Uh, like you know, I, I had a bunch of trade and and economic infrastructure, and then this other you know civilization or culture from you know the same region. Uh, in the next era, also had a bunch of trade and economic infrastructure, and it's like, well, well, I'm just going to keep, you know, riding that horse. So they could also do stuff like that, where there's there's mecha- where they don't hard gate you, but the the bonuses and stuff like that could be set up in such a way where, uh, you know, following a particular path through the cultures, yeah, you know, maybe fa- facilitates a certain gameplay style. Yeah, yeah, mechanical incentives are always good, but it, it is definitely very nice to be able to choose a new culture with new uniques and stuff like that in order to uh, maybe offset a weakness that you have. Like, you know, uh, the game that I'm currently playing right now, I fell almost a whole era behind in technology. So, you know, going into a new era, I picked uh, Korea because they've got the Seowon district, just like in Civ Six, which is a you know pretty powerful science building. So I, I took that, I built a bunch of Seowon and all my territories, and then I, uh, you know, focused more on building research infrastructure uh, and working more research stuff in order to try to catch up. I'm still behind, but I'm only behind by like half an era or a quarter of an era now instead of being behind by like a whole era. So it gives you that opportunity to pivot gameplay style as well as the uh, game conditions change which is really cool and which is an issue that i've had with civ where you know you're stuck with this culture and uh if you're on a map or whatever or the game conditions just don't ever let you use your unique stuff uh you're just out for the whole game on that stuff i like religious victory yes bring back the apostolic (laughs) palace not that one (laughs) i think the game counted that as a diplomatic victory rather than a religious victory technically yes Religious victory is so troll. <laughs> it's so sick. <laughs> I like how Grimbeck won that way recently. <laughs> it's like you, yeah, well, you know, when everybody else is too busy finding words, and I think he had done his early word, and just okay, I'm just going to spam this out and convert and convert, and we don't think about it because we normally don't leverage religious things as much <laughs> yeah. in the multiplayer games. So Wipe like, out the last thing. Hi, Grimbeck wins. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> And I don't know if, if this is unpopular, but uh, I actually feel like in a lot of the areas where Civ Six uh, transferred mechanics from uh, Civ Five, I feel like the Civ Five implementation was better. I like the way that Civ Five did trade routes better. I like the way that Civ Five did great works and museum theming better. Uh, and I thought that those sorts of things were a pretty big regression in Civ Six. Civ Five also had cornering the energy market, also known as buying out city states as a victory condition. Was going to wait better the energy market, I and I was like, "Oh right, Alpha Centauri." <laughs> I mean, it's basically the same thing, though. It's a money victory. Yes. With a slightly the, different coat of paint between the two. But the, the big thing with Civ Five's trade routes was I really liked how, right from the start of the game, there's reciprocal benefits from the trade routes. Like the person you send the trade route to gets gold. And that's true right from the start of the game. And yeah. that makes it so that it, it's a lot more valuable to, you know, be diplomatic with your neighbors so that you can get them to send you trade routes, which is just not a thing that you really have to consider at all in Civ Six because you don't get any benefits from other Civs sending you trade until much later in the game. 
Unless you were going uh, limited city tradition internal trade routes to pump hammers out anyway. Well, right, but you can still do that with your trade routes and then get trade routes from other civs that would give you money. That's true. Yeah, I would still send them. Now, the only reason you would want a trade route from another civ early in the game is if you want the road that would come along with it. But as we said earlier, the roads aren't all that impactful early in the game anyway, uh, especially if they're going over flat land. So, eh. Yeah, trade routes... I, I do think Civ 6 should buff roads, although, again, that's not going to be an unpopular opinion. But, like, roads mattered in the BCs pretty significantly already, like, more than they're represented in the game. Well, a big part of the Roman Empire's success was the fact that it had a very robust road network. Yeah. I mean, it made good use of its shipping, too, in the Mediterranean. But, yeah, the roads were important, way more so than the game makes them. Yeah, well, the game doesn't really make them any more important. It just gives them to you for free. Yeah. But I could definitely see uh, maybe a unique ability for Rome maybe being something like Roman roads, which is that they're like an era better than, you know, the current era's version of roads. So you do get those extra benefits earlier in the game. I believe that was their ability in Civ 5 was... No. Civ 5, it was 25% for every building in the capital. Anyway, let's talk about Civ 2. Or so, a popular opinion would be not to like Civ 2, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Kenneth. That was a joke, and you know it. <laughs> so. You never played it. When I was your age. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what is this uh, person's name? Kim Justice? Well, that's their username, at least. Yeah, released a YouTube video about Civilization 2 and called it The Story of the Everlasting Game. And it's uh, 45 minutes long, and it's a very interesting um, description and storyline of the creation and the reason why Civ 2 is such a good game and why it continues to be played by a lot of people all over the internet today. Um, it starts off with a nice little history of the Eternal War, which everybody remembers. And mm-hmm. it then moves on to how Brian Reynolds got into Firaxis, or not Firaxis, Microperos at the time. Um, how he uh, first made colonization by, by reverse engineering civilization and making it what he wanted. And then, because Sid, Sid Meier didn't have any real interest in making a sequel, he uh, they put Brian Reynolds on it and put Sid in the, in the advisor role. Yeah, it's interesting to me, both during the development of colonization and Civ 2, that uh, Sid chose, basically, uh, to take a back seat there, very deliberately. It's an interesting aspect of his personality, for sure. He was more so interested in CPU Bach, which I'm really interested in. I want to see that game. Well, it also sounds like he kind of maybe felt like the project was done, you know, and he was done. He wanted to move, just move on to other things. Yeah, but I would say that's not typical. Yeah, it seems like he always wanted to move to a new and more interesting project. He wasn't necessarily wanting to keep evolving a thing and make it better, necessarily. Once he'd gotten the concept down and made it work to the extent he made it, wanted to make it work, he's like, well, this is good. I'm happy with this, you know. And so he got Civ done, and he was happy with that, and wasn't necessarily into having to refresh it or renew it or what have you. Move on to the next project. Yeah. Shinier thing, dare we say? 
I don't know if it would be the shinier thing, but the next challenge. Yes. Yes, because I figured out the civilization thing. Let me try and make a Bach thing. <laughs> well, it also seems like he, he was just doing passion projects. Like, you know, whatever he mm-hmm. wanted to do was, was what he would do. And he would do it till he was done, and then he would do the next thing he wanted to do. So, you know, good for him. Yeah. And, and that was also an era there in, with gaming and stuff where you could see a particular game designers have hopped between genres all the time and nobody batted an eye at that. I think these days some people are like, why are you, why is somebody from strategy doing this other thing? And it's like, well, maybe that's what they wanted to do. Maybe that's not the only thing they're good at. Or just being stuck making the same game or same game franchise every single year <laughs> for like 20 years, Ubisoft. To the point where your own developers start to put in meta backstories about how their development team is burnt out and sick of making this stuff, all Assassin's Creed Black Flag. They're like, nope, nope, nope. Done with this. It's also interesting to see that there are already cracks uh, between uh, Reynolds and Meyer and Microprose, even back then, during Civ 2 development. It's interesting, because I associate Microprose with a lot of good games, actually, but... I guess they, uh, they were not the best to all of their employees, even if, at the time. By the time Civilization came around, they didn't realize what they had, and they had kind of lost their way. Yeah. And then they got bought, which didn't help. Welcome That's to true. the 90s, the era of buyouts. Be thankful they didn't get bought by Electronic Arts. Oh, back then, Electronic Arts wasn't the absolute evil that it is today. It was actually kind of good. It was sliding into that, though, because when they took over Origin back in the day, Origin was already poking things at them because they knew what was going to happen once they got took over. But they also knew if they didn't let the, they didn't do the buyout, that they weren't going to survive. Yeah. Yeah, EA did not stay a good company very long. That is no, true. That, that, was, that was right, at the, that was right, right at the end of them being good and the, the start of the, what is it, evil acquisitions? Yeah. Were it not just that they did evil acquisitions, but she's... <laughs> the quality of their product in general is so bad too although maybe well, they, that's colored by Madden maybe yes, I'm biased but you're correct, there was a point where it was not bad and there was a reason people liked them up to a certain point and somewhere in the mid-90s is where the pendulum goes the other way Madden in particular was good up until the about 2004, 2005, 2006-ish yeah that was when yeah. it started going downhill, which coincidentally or perhaps not coincidentally was the same time where they got the exclusive rights was right after, <laughs> right after 2005, when was was it was it 2K that made a football game that was so much better than every football game that has been made since, or something? Yeah, yeah. Well, to most people, yeah. I mean, back then there was some trade-off between the two. Like uh, the Madden games offered some things that 2K didn't, and vice versa. But Madden is just like cut features and has become progressively less realistic slash balanced in choice options for more than a decade now. And it's for the past decade or so has also been focusing almost exclusively on its pay to win, you know, ultimate team mode where you got to buy the loot boxes in order to and play competitive online matches. So the whole game is designed around these, you know, 20 minute, 20, 30 minute pickup games online instead of being designed around the, you know, single player simulation of the sport of football that, you know, those gamers like me who are 30 years or older uh, want to play. And committing fraud in doing so. I, I, I emphasize this again. Their statements about player ratings in conjunction with Ultimate Team is unambiguously fraud. EA is committing fraud routinely there. 
And I will go on record saying that. Screw you, EA. They lie about what those ratings do in the past. And to my knowledge, we still don't have good documentation of exactly how they translate to on-the-field play in the game, even now. I might be mistaken. Maybe that information's come out in the past few years since I stopped caring. Uh, but at least as of a few years ago, EA released information alleging what the stats do. People tested it empirically in the game. And uh, some of the stats they said mattered just didn't do anything at all. It didn't do what they said they do, and they didn't do anything at all. And yet people put money on these cards based on those numbers. So yeah, EA is straight up fraudsters when it comes well, to that game mode. I don't like, know if this is a illegal def- fraud. I don't know if this is a defensive EA. Oh, sorry, there's a crying baby in the background. Uh, but um, uh, one of the reasons that that happens is just because of like legacy things, where they had a rating that did do something, and then they changed the mechanics around that thing that the rating did, and now the do the same thing, or it doesn't do anything at all because that mechanic has been changed. And uh, you can even see that in like the wiki for some of the ratings. They say, hey, this is basically an orphaned rating that doesn't do anything anymore because the mechanic changed. I can buy that, except for what I'm saying was relevant to what they were saying about the ratings at the time in application to the game at the time. Like yeah, they so- claimed awareness mattered on defense. It didn't. They claimed strength mattered for run blocking or blocking in general. It didn't. There are numerous things where just they were proven false statements at the time of making them for the game which they were made. Oh yeah, no, no, no question about that either. So it's a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B. Yeah, and I, I have no respect. They, they are straight up fraud. <laughs> that still irks me because somehow they got away with that. That and the NFL keeps renewing the exclusive license. They just yeah. last year it was renewed for another six years. Yeah, yeah, the NFL renewed fraud. The NFL's done a number of things I don't like lately, so there's that. National Monopoly League. Yeah, they're not as bad as EA, but the NFL's pretty bad. The National Monopoly Football League. I I will say it is one of my pet peeves, though, when people, like, throw hate on EA for having the exclusive license. Because that's not EA's fault. That's the NFL's fault. Like... EA made the correct business decision in yeah. accepting that exclusive rights contract. No, no company in their right mind would or should turn that down. So, yeah, don't hate EA for having the exclusive rights. Hate EA for not doing anything meaningful with that exclusive rights. Yeah, and for the NFL to give it to them. Yeah, and keep renewing it. Hate EA for doing like the bare minimum to keep the contract. Yeah, it, it is like that. It, it's kind of like how movie companies will just, you know, crap out a really bad movie just to maintain the rights to that property. Like, mm-hmm. basically every Fantastic Four movie that has ever been made was made specifically so that, uh, what, I think 20th Century Fox would keep the rights to those characters, even though they didn't really have a true, like, artistic vision for what they wanted to do with the movie yet. <laughs> well, good thing they're gone. Oopsies. How do I get the heating on EA? That's not yeah. unpopular. What, what, what were we talking about again? <laughs> we were talking about... Unpopular. We, we already got past that topic. Oh, right. Oh, we wait, we are. Yeah, yeah, we're covering the, the, Civ, the Civ 2 video, which also is a bit of a deviation. Because <laughs> EA did not, in fact, buy Microprose or interact with these guys, fortunately. Well, <laughs> it was 2K. They did yeah. end up with this Alpha Centauri license somehow. That's true, that's true. So they do things. factor in. They do factor in, never mind. Oh, there we go. Perfect segue. Ugh. Good job, Canis. Yeah, they worked with Electronic Arts for a while. <sighs> on the top 
topic of the thing that we are supposed to be talking about, which is the Civ 2 video, uh, one of the things that I found interesting was that there was like ongoing legal disputes between the Avalon Hill board game company and uh, Firaxis and its its parent companies over the use of the Civilization name. Because I guess apparently they had made a board game called Civilization and they felt that the computer game was like close enough in spirit to that that they thought it was potentially like I guess a copyright infringement or something, or they they thought they mm-hmm. deserved they thought- royalties. And the solution to that, I, I guess, was uh, either was it Two K or Activision? Uh, uh, just Two K was not involved in this uh, because yeah, they had Activision at the time, right? Yeah, um, Activision bought Avalon Hill. Or no. Uh, Avalon Hill got together with Activision, and they together sued uh, Microprose. Microprose's owner went and bought the little British company that sold the American rights for the game that they created to Avalon Hill, and then got up for a nice long legal battle, and they both ended up getting uh, bought by Hasbro in the end. Yeah, just this really complicated you know, corporate drama around, like... Whether or not Civ was actually, you know, infringing on the copyright of a board game. And it all turned out for nothing because they were both owned by the same company at the end. Right. Well, I, I, my understanding from the, the video uh, was the, the creator gave the impression that the parent company just bought both in order to end the legal disputes and so that they would have, like, undisputed rights to using that name in both contexts. Yeah. What a way to get wrecked. So just a classic case of a big company buying out the competition, uh, you know, anti-consumer, monopolistic business practices. Okay, corporate America. They weren't buying them because they wanted it. They bought them because the companies were both failing. Well, yeah, that's true, too. Most of these, but most of the time a company gets bought out by another, it's not usually to do something like that. It's usually because one of the companies needs to be sold to survive. Sometimes it's not, but usually it is. Classic hostile takeover is a little rare, I guess. But yes, as an avid board game player and also a fan of the Civilization board games that I have played, I found that particular bit of historical background very interesting. Avalon Hill made its own Civilization game, too. They did, and I, that's the one that I have not played. Uh, I've never found a copy of that one. I've, I've heard it's, it wasn't very good, so I haven't like bothered going too far out of my way to try to find it. But the ones that have been made by Fantasy Flight... Uh, which I think was recently bought out. I forget by who, though. Uh, those ones are, are are both quite good. No, I in mean, my opinion. Avalon Hill made a digital civilization game. Oh yeah, that too. <laughs> I forget what it was called. Probably uh, Avalon Hill Civilization. Yeah, it wasn't the Test of Time or the Call to Power, right? Those were different. No, ones. those were different. Avalon Hill's Advanced Civilization, the Civilization board game, including the expansion called Advanced Civilization, was published in 1995, shortly before Avalon Hill was bought by Hasbro. Huh, the font looks very similar to Civ Four, but it only goes from the early Bronze Age to the Iron Age. Or the game was commercially unsuccessful, sold fewer than 20,000 units. Ouch. In three years. You can do more, like, nuance relative to a time period if you constrain the years. I mean, the Paradox games do that to some degree. Yeah. But it lends itself to representing the aspects of a particular period in history in a way that Civ games really just can't because they're yeah. going through a full time scale. Yeah. You don't have to abstract things as much. Yeah. 
Yeah, you you could not get the depth that say Europa Universalis does and go all the way back from BC all the way forward because it's just that's yeah, it, yeah the no, complexity the economy would be like stupid. Well, you you could. They paradox just spread that out across like what four different games. You've got Crusader Kings, Europa Universalis, Hearts of Iron, Imperator Rome. Yeah, good luck trying to like shift mechanics outright mid game. Now you, you can like like there are mods in EU four that let you do like much earlier time starts and progress much later in the game, but it doesn't like it, like it only works so well because the mechanics aren't really designed for that. Yeah, and there's so, like, you kind of have to like shoehorn stuff and like throw in abstract modifiers and whatnot, and you you can do it, but it just doesn't do it justice the way it does the designed time period justice. Well, all I'm saying is you you could kind of you know, cheat to get a similar experience by just playing those games, campaigns in those games in sequential order. Oh yeah, sure. And you can even like transfer one from the one to the other. Although if you play well in one particular time period, then the rest are trivial typically since you can world conquer in Crusader Kings or EU4. I don't know about Victoria. I hear that's pretty infeasible unless you start as a major. Uh, although I, I believe some of the top players have still managed to like world conquer with Albania and Vicky at various points. And Hearts of Iron is trivial, but there's nothing to <laughs> there's no porting that into Stellaris or something. You're you're just done in Hearts of Iron. And Hearts of Iron still isn't finished, so there's that too. It's early access. I bet you can even play the future era with Stellaris. Yeah, yeah, but you're not gonna be able to transfer a save to that one. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Because you can transfer saves between up to Vicky. I don't think Vicky can go translates into Hearts of Iron, but you can run quite a long period of time if you want. Now we just need Paradox to make like a Cold War era game, and then we're good. Oh boy, yeah, no, uh, not until they make Hearts of Iron functional, uh, which that's an unpopular opinion coming from me. Man, do I get ratioed when I crap on that game? But it's so bad. The the base mechanics and controls in Hearts of Iron are so bad. It's it's inexcusably bad. This isn't a, a podcast for that, so I won't get into too much detail. But like, you can you can give orders, and those orders don't work in an objective sense. Routinely, that is the case. Like, imagine right-clicking something in Civ, and the unit just doesn't go there. It doesn't do what you say. Well, if you're right-clicking into the fog of war, that actually does happen. No, I mean, like, even just to attack a unit. Actually, I complained about this once in Civ Six, and they fixed it ultimately. Um, because, like, I was ordering my units to attack, and they moved. But, like, Hearts of Iron does it constantly. Constantly. It's such a chore to try to get the game to do what you want to do. And then on top of that, the mechanics are broken. Like, you get more value out of repeatedly pushing the AI off of Cairo and letting it take it back than you would from, say, conquering all of Italy. As, uh, or, like, having your military overrun all of Italy in terms of uh, peace conference weight. Because of how stupidly it calculates the the war contribution, the whole thing is just a joke. <sighs> yeah. Well, let's not get too far into the weeds there. <laughs> it's a bad game. We'll just leave it at that. Ratio me all you want. You're on. <laughs> how long have we been going? Uh, a little over an hour. Yeah, maybe we should postpone the last topic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess in that case, that uh, that brings me up. So, thanks all for joining us on Polycast episode 392. I'm the main team, and I was joined by Canis. I hate hangnails. Makalua. Seconded. 
and Mega Bears fan. Gotta go take care of a crying baby. Oh no! Aww. Sounds adorable. He doesn't like being loaded up into his car seat. Aww. <laughs> Once he's in the car, though, he calms right down and just falls asleep, so... Have fun on your baby drive. Civilization 3, 4, 5, Beyond Earth, and 6, Sound Clips, Copyright Take-Two Interactive. Copyright the Polycast at thepolycast.net.